The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 10 this morning. If you haven't been with us, uh, we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew, written by the Apostle Matthew. Uh, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is writing about the life of Jesus. He's writing about the life of Christ in order that we may come to know who Jesus is, in order that we might come to see that He is truly the Son of God, uh, that He came uh, for a mission. He came to give His life a ransom upon Calvary, a ransom for sinners to die, be crucified, buried, and raised again in order that salvation may come to the ends of the earth, to all who turn to Him. That's the history of the life of Christ that Matthew is ultimately leading us to, the death, burial, and resurrection at the end of the gospel. But Jesus did a lot more in his lifetime. We're looking to the life and the teaching of Jesus as he transitions from the old covenant into the new covenant, as he validates that he truly is the promised Messiah that God promised even all the way back in Genesis 3, that one would come from the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He's validating that Jesus truly is the promised Redeemer, the Messiah um, written all through the prophets that would come, that would truly bring healing and truly be the greater son of David who would rule and reign eternally over a kingdom. He's, he's building the case by the life of Jesus to show us, to teach us who Jesus really is and what Jesus truly accomplished for us in His death, burial, and resurrection. That He was not merely some man that lived, some good rabbi or teacher that lived, but He was actually the very Son of God incarnate who came to die upon a cross for your sins and my sins. And so we have seen so far through the teaching of Jesus, through the miracles of Jesus, His power over uh, sickness, his power over even death itself, his power over demons to command them and they obey, his power over nature, he speaks to the wind and the storm and the sea is calm, the, the power of Christ that evidences the teaching of Christ, that he truly is the Son of God. We come to chapter 10 and what we find is in chapter 10 we've already seen him call a number of dis his disciples, but we're about to read the uh, Twelve disciples whom he appoints, whom he now, uh, we're going to read commissions. He sends them out on a mission uh, to share basically what the message of John the Baptist was. Uh, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 10. I want to read through verse 15 this morning. Follow along as I read aloud. And when he, that is Jesus, had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, 
freely give, provide neither silver nor uh, gold, neither silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town that you enter, inquire who is in it uh, that is worthy, and stay there until you go out. And when you go out into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it isn't worthy, let your peace return to you, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words. When you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of judgment than for that city. Now, when we read our Bibles, we need to read our Bibles carefully. We need to read our Bibles wisely. Many people have come up with all sorts of foolish applications from the Word of God simply because they do not know how to read rightly. They read out of context. They read a passage, perhaps even in the Old Testament, and they do not realize the entirety of the rest of Scripture that, that is fulfilled by uh, fulfilling that Old Testament passage that, that brings a different application to us this side of the cross than that side of the cross. We want to read our Bibles wisely. We want to realize where it is we're jumping into in the history of God's redemptive plan. Has Jesus come and died upon the cross and been buried and resurrected? Are we still under the law, under the old covenant when we're reading what we're reading? Are we this side of the cross with a more direct application to us? It's, it's good to read our Bibles wisely. We come to this commission of Jesus. And there are many who would read this commissioning of the twelve, and they take a very direct application to our lives today. And I would, I would caution that, taking a direct application, reading this as if it's one for one correlating to you and me today. Uh, this is actually before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to interpret this passage, even this morning, we need to apply it to our life in light of the rest of the Scripture and if you know your Bibles, even if you just know the Gospel of Matthew very well, you know there is a, another commission that's given at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? The very final words of Matthew's Gospel, it records Jesus before his ascension into heaven, giving a commission to the twelve again. And by application through the twelve, even to you and me, this side of the cross. So this commissioning of the twelve before the cross is a bit different than the commissioning Jesus gives after the cross. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 28 so you can see what I'm talking about. The second commission, this great commission as we would call it because of its application to you and me today, versus this first commissioning that was a very particular commissioning. It, it was a particular word for a particular group of people at a particular time. We have to ask, how does it apply to you and me today? Matthew 28 and verse 18, the final words of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. A bit different than the first commissioning of the twelve. At the onset of his ministry, before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, before the rejection of Israel, rejecting the Messiah. I want to, in introduction, quickly walk through a couple of things 
that, that are different, that don't apply to us, and correlate one to one. It is a little bit more of a teaching introduction, a little bit more academic, so bear with me if this bores you to death, but it's necessary because I don't want you misapplying this first commission in a way that is unhealthy, in a way that isn't right to our lives today. For one, the message is a bit more, I would say, a bit more full, the side of the cross. It was in seed form then, and we have the fullness of the gospel message now this side of the cross. Notice the message that his disciples were proclaiming in the the first commission was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is a message that was before the cross in preparation for what Jesus was about to accomplish. Jesus was about to to do something that, that would bring about the salvation of his people. He was about to accomplish the redemption of humanity through the the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was offering to his people the the kingdom that was coming. We, on this side of the cross, it's worded a little bit differently in the Great Commission, go and preach the gospel, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, It's more fulfilled in the, the fulfillment of it all and the fullness of it all. We see the entirety of God's redemptive plan of how he would actually bring about the forgiveness of our sins, this side of the cross, more fully than that first commissioning when they were sent. We see the target audience is a little bit different. In the first commission, God says, don't go to the Gentiles, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. The primary audience in this first sending out of his disciples was to Israel, was to the towns of of Israel. And he said, don't go to the Gentiles. In the, the latter commission, this side of the cross, what does he say? Go to all the nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so the, the audience has sort of, target audience has changed from Israel only with Gentiles who could hear and be saved, but they'd have to be there. The target audience was Israel, and now it's, no, you go out. Go out to the ends of the world. Go out to all the nations. Why Israel only in this first commission? To understand that, you do have to dive a little bit deeper into God's Word and understand that Israel holds a special place in the eyes of God. And even this side of the cross, when Paul writes Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, unto the Jew first and also the Gentile. Even Paul recognized the priority of getting the gospel to the ethnic covenant people of God in the Old Covenant. Israel holds a special prominent place in the eyes of God. It was to Abraham that God made this first promise, this covenant, that he would make a great people of Abraham and they would be a blessing to all the nations. Through them would come a blessing. Even Christ would come through the Israelites. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 9, speaking of Israel. He says it's to them who pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. There is a special place in the eyes of God for His covenant people Israel. The gospel and the good news even of the kingdom and its infancy and the the, the onset of the ministry of Jesus was first and foremost to the Jew. It was first and foremost in fulfillment of all the promises God had made to the Jews that He would work a work that would accomplish their restoration. 
that he would restore Jerusalem, that he would give them a new heart, and he'd write on his uh, on their heart the, the law of God, Jeremiah 31, this new covenant. It was first and foremost to the ethnic Jews. You read Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11 especially, and what you see is because of their rejection, because he came unto his own, but his own did not receive them. God, for a season, has grafted in the Gentiles. He's taken the wild branch, Romans 11 says, and he's grafted, he's taken out the natural, and he's, he's grafted us in where the, the, where the majority of the people coming to Christ right now aren't, aren't Jews. They're actually Gentiles. Now, it says when the fullness of time of the Gentiles is complete, God's going to return, I believe, to ethnic Israel, and there will be a great turning of ethnic Israel to Christ in the latter days, at the very end. We don't at all have time to dive into that this morning. But all that to say, realize Israel does hold a special place in the eyes of God. And all this that's going on, even in Israel today, um, is not inconsequential. It's not by accident. Um, No man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return, but I do know it's closer today than it was yesterday. um, That God is still at work drawing his people to Christ. And understand that too, just a little footnote there. Um, Any Jew must come through Christ. They're not saved just because of their ethnic heritage. They must come through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ's atoning work on Calvary is salvation for the Jew first, but also the Gentile. It is the salvation for the Jews, though. If they do not know and believe upon Jesus, there is no salvation for them, just because ethnically they have such a heritage. All of that, an introduction. One more introductory point. I'm sorry, i got one more thing. The method's a little bit different. Jesus told them, as we just read, to go to a town, preach this message. Those that receive it, bless, give them your peace. Those that don't, don't, and then shake the dust off your feet and go to the next place. And and in this first commissioning, it, it was very... Go, 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 go. Don't spend any time at all in one place. You're you're on a mission to get it out. Now, that may be what God calls some to do, and some that that very um, short, stunt, short-stinted um, mission in one city, moving to the next, moving to the next. That's the call of some, but that's not a prescription upon us all. That's not. We shouldn't take that and say, well, that means we have to. If we're going to do missions, that's how we ought to do missions. That it's wrong to plant your life. In a town, it's wrong to give your life um, being served to a people that may not be seeing much fruit. Um, God has worked, if you know, missionary biographies in many lives where they see no converts until after their death because of the seeds that were planted and the work that was accomplished there. And so we don't want to take this, all of that in introduction to say, we don't want to take this and form a one-to-one application to how we should do ministry and missions today. This is the first commissioning. This is before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to interpret it in light of the rest of the Bible. Moving forward now, what can we apply? What are some timeless truths, some timeless principles that that this first commissioning elevates that we may take and say, man, this speaks to my life today as a believer of Jesus. First, first notice as a disciple of Jesus. You should be living on mission for Him. As a disciple of Jesus, you you ought to be living a life that is on mission for Jesus. On mission meaning being lived in an acknowledgement of His call upon your life as a disciple. 
to be living like a missionary, even though you may not be a missionary officially who is sent to another country, another culture, another place to preach the gospel. You are, in one sense, a missionary if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus. God has called you and set you apart to be a a witness, to be salt, to be light in whatever context of life that He has placed you in. God chose these twelve ordinary men. They, They weren't the ones that human wisdom would say Jesus should have chosen. If you watch in that, the TV series, The Chosen, it does do a good job of, of pointing that out, that these people were, were just common fishermen. And Matthew, a tax collector, and the others had jobs of such unimportance that it's not even listed. We don't even know what they were doing because it wasn't even prominent enough to, to mention. And, and so none of these people were the ones that you and I would have gone to and told Jesus, hey, if you're looking for some disciples, here's the list of the best and the brightest. Here's the list of the who's who in Israel in the first century. You know, Jesus went to a bunch of uneducated, no-named, common, ordinary people, and he said, Follow me. Follow me. Become my disciples. I have chosen you. My goodness, little did they know the work that God would accomplish through them. 1 Corinthians one twenty six and 27 says that you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise. Why? So that no one can boast. That no one can stand before God and say, I'm here because of me, because of my authority, because of my intellect, because of my spirituality. No, God chooses to do His greatest work through common, ordinary people. And often in common, ordinary means, honestly. There is another application there. We like to, to spend all our focus on the mighty miracles, on the big things, when the reality is the, the, the common working of God. It occurs through ordinary people, through ordinary means, through you as an ordinary person that God has saved, living an ordinary life in an ordinary place, doing an ordinary thing, nothing spectacular, but, but, but you know God, and God has called you, and you're a disciple of Jesus, and you live your life on mission for Him, and so that means that you live your life with such an integrity and a character before people that don't know Christ, people that are lost and confused and blinded and in darkness, that, that you live your life as a light, and in that ordinary Christian life, living for God, following Him, being His disciple, you, you, you're living on mission, and God uses that. People come to see there's something different about you. People come to see there's something different about the way you face the unexpected turns in life when accidents come and sickness comes, even when you face death itself and you have a, a peace that passes all understanding because you know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and you know Jesus is Lord and Savior and so you know I am forgiven, I've got eternal life and it creates a, a suspicion in those that don't because they're scared to death of death and they're confused as all get out about life. The best that they can come up with is two big balls of matter collided together and boom, big bang, all of this came into being. And you and I are here today because of random chance given an infinite amount of time. Like, like Think about it for a moment. Don't be blinded by the wisdom that really is the foolishness of this world. The world proclaims, the nature, universe proclaims there is a God. You have been called by Him. You have been set apart as salt and light. Jesus said in John 20:21, 20, 
peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's this side of the cross. That's John's way of wording the Great Commission. Just as God sent you, uh, sent Jesus, Jesus is sending you and He's sending me. And God is a sending God. He, he sent Abraham to the promised land to create of him a people by which he would bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God sent Moses to Egypt. God sent the prophets to his people. God sent Jesus to this earth. Those are just a few of the big highlights of this theological, biblical theme of the fact that our God is ascending God. And now, now just as he sent the disciples then, realize he's sending you now. Do you view your life that way? Do you view your life in whatever occupation it is that you're doing in that light that God has called you to it? That God has put you on a mission there. There you're to live as salt and light. There you're to be a witness. There you're to be an ambassador for Him. If you're truly a disciple of Jesus, you will come to see it that way. You realize the biggest work going on in the world right now isn't what's happening in the White House it isn't what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and the warfare going on there and Israel and the war or Syria or Iran. You realize the biggest work going on in the entire world right now is that God is calling a people to Himself. God is at work building His church. God is at work saving lost sinners and calling them to Jesus. And when you understand just the, the, the gravity of that work of God in redeeming lost sinners, the, the miracle and mystery in it all, that He lets you and me be a participant in it. That He saved you and He didn't save you and, and call you right to heaven. He saved you and left you where you were and He put you where you were in order that you may be on mission for Him. Are you living your life as a disciple of Jesus on mission for Him? If you highlight an underline in your Bible, I would highlight these words in this passage. Freely you have received, freely you give. Freely you have received, freely you give. You did not earn your salvation. You, you, you did not achieve the forgiveness of your sins by your works. It's not something that you earned or achieved or purchased. You realize you're saved. Why? Because of the lavish grace of God. Because of what God did. Salvation is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's not of works. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And the application here is they weren't to collect money because they didn't pay for the, the knowledge of Jesus that God gave them. They didn't pay to become the disciples of Jesus. They didn't earn it because of their great intellect or education. They knew it was just by the grace of God that freely He gave to them. He called them. He, he showed them who He was. And He's saying, just as you freely have received, you should be freely given. You should recognize that you're surrounded by lost people that need Christ. And you don't, you don't charge money for the gospel. And you don't get on TV and I'll mail you a handkerchief if you send in your offering with $300. No, you don't. Those people will stand guilty before God. They will give an account before the Lord someday. The gospel isn't to be marketed and, and, and sold for money or even used for financial gain. Freely you have received. Freely you give. Are you living on mission for the Lord this morning? 
As a disciple, you ought to live on mission for him. Notice, secondly, as a disciple of Jesus, you should trust that God can meet your every need. That, that you don't have to get all anxious and afraid and, and overburdened because of, of the needs of your life as you're living on mission for the Lord. That as you live on mission for him, God will supply for your every need. The disciples were told that they weren't to take gold and silver and, and even two tunics with them, two outfits, changes of clothing. Now this again is for them in that particular place in time, on that particular commission. In Luke 22, Jesus even reverses that word that he gives here in light of the crucifixion that was upcoming. And he says, now you need to get your gold and get your silver and you need to get all your clothes because there is a time of hardship that was coming. But for this first commission, he tells them, hey, you're not taking all your supplies with you. You're to go and you're to trust that God's going to supply for you as you go. There's a good principle there, a timeless principle there, that God will provide for His people when we obey Him. When we set out on mission for the Lord, the echoed in Matthew 6 even, in the, the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says, hey, don't take thought for what you're going to eat or what you will drink or what you will wear, for after all these things the lost people seek, Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but what? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That if you just get right with the Lord, and you follow the Lord as He's calling you to, to follow Him, and, and you just trust and obey Him, God will take care of your needs. That's not meaning that you sit on your behind and do nothing and say, oh, God's going to give it to me. No, you work. You obey Him. You follow Him. You, you do what He's put before you to do. And you trust that as you do that, ultimately it's not your workings that will provide for yourself. God's going to do it. God's going to put it all together. God will open up the right door at the right time. God will bring the, 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 in His providential care the, the need being fulfilled when, when you need it fulfilled just have to trust and follow Him. They weren't to collect money as they went out on this commission, on this journey to share the good news of, of Christ. But they were, it says, to be taken care of. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, you know, after He says, don't take any money, don't take any supplies, He says, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, that's an Old Testament principle that you paid the, the wages of a worker when the worker worked that day. You didn't delay to pay the worker the dues that he was due. And so here, Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to make a living through the proclamation about the kingdom, through the ministry that I am calling you to. There will be those who believe the word from Christ that will come to take you into your, their houses and will come to feed you and provide for you. There is a principle here for us that's echoed all through the New Testament that those who live by the ministry, uh, it's, it's good to provide for them as they live by the ministry. It's written by Paul to Timothy in First. Well, let's look to 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14 first. It says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the holy things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offering of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. It's not wrong to pay a pastor to pastor a church. It's not wrong to give financially to a missionary or a church planner as they go out to do full-time that which the Lord has called them to do. 
1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. It's right to take care of those who are giving their life uh, to full-time ministry. I am thankful I can preach that with a freedom up here this morning because Trinity Baptist Church is a place that takes care of its, of its pastors. Uh, you've got myself, you've got Pastor Scott, Pastor Justin, Pastor Clay. Uh, we are full-time here serving. Full-time, I have the privilege of doing the Lord's work here at Trinity Baptist Church, and I'm thankful that you as Trinity Baptist Church provide for us. Uh, over and above, beyond even what you, you give us in a, a salary, the, just the blessings and generosity of, of you throughout the year even. Thank you so much for your heart to take care of your pastors. So that's one aspect of it. But another aspect of it is there are missionaries who are trying to get the gospel to people that have never heard the gospel. And it is right and it is fitting that we financially give of our tithes and offerings in order to support those missionaries, to support those church planners who are out there on the front line, so to speak, leaving all behind the safety and security and comforts of what you and I enjoy to go preach the gospel to the people that God has called them to. It's right and it's fitting that we give 10% of what comes into our offering plate goes directly to the cooperative program through which some 4,000 missionaries through Southern Baptist mission work are supported. And they're well taken care of and they're able to serve faithfully because of your giving, because of our giving here at Trinity Baptist Church. It's right and fitting that we give to church planners who are leaving again home and family to go to a place to plant a church. Uh, we do a lot. Uh, but this is just a charge to say we can do more. You should trust God to meet your every need. Part of that is giving to the Lord of your tithes and offerings to the work of the Lord, knowing that as you give, God, God meets your needs. God provides for you. One last point that we will close with quickly. You should share His Word knowing what is at stake. Share His Word, knowing what is at stake. Verses 11 through 15. God gave a unique instruction, particular instruction to His disciples here, and He said, when, they, when a person rejects, you just go to the next place. Like, this was a, there was a time-imperative nature to this first commission because the cross was coming, and even this was in work in preparation for the cross. And so he says, you're not to stay in one city. You're to go from place to place to place. And he says, if they receive you, give a blessing. If they don't, then, then don't let your peace come upon them. You don't give a blessing. And he says, whoever will not hear your words, verse 14, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Now, we read this, and in light of our English expression, we think of Taylor Swift, shake it off. Be honest, you were thinking it. Shake it off. We think that just means shake shake off the you know hurt that you may feel from being rejected. You think that might mean shake off the emotional, you know, whatever it is as you're being rejected as you preach the gospel and go to the next place. What the Bible speaks of here culturally when it talks of shaking the dust off your feet is a lot is a lot stronger. Um, proclamation being made. It's not just, this isn't going to bother me, I need to go on to the next place. To shake the dust off your feet was what the Jews would do after they stepped through a Gentile city. 
So the Jews, given the promised land, the holy land, the set-apart land, whenever they would walk through a Gentile city, meaning a pagan city, where God was not worshipped, where idols were worshipped, where injustices were being committed, where wickedness prevailed, whenever they walked through those places, they would customarily shake the dust off of their feet before continuing on into the Holy Land. It was a symbolic image of, of removing the filth and even of a proclamation of judgment that this that I have just come through is not right. I've got to get it off of me. There is judgment coming because of what this is before I go into the Promised Land. And so when Jesus tells His disciples, when you walk into, go to an Israelite city, go to the city of the Jews, the, the Holy Land, the, the sanctified land, but when you walk through that land, and the people reject the word that is being given by God to them, you're to shake the dust off your feet. You're to make a proclamation that though these are the people of God, there is great judgment coming upon them because they are not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When you reject the word of God, there are dire consequences. There, there is judgment that is to come. And the shaking off of the feet was a sign, the dust of the feet was a sign of judgment. And then Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment for that city. Now, we may joke that God might strike you with lightning if you were to do something or the, 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 the roof of the church caves in, you know, because of something in your life as you walk. We joke about that. But you realize Sodom and Gomorrah, these were cities that were filled with such such wickedness, this dark wickedness, that God literally rained down fire from heaven, it says in Genesis, to wipe these two cities out. And that's the picture that God paints for even the cities of His own people who reject this truth that God was given about the kingdom of God that we know more fully now, revealed through the person of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. You realize what's at stake here is eternal glory or eternal damnation. That when a person rejects the Word of God, dies without knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, there really is a place called hell that is worse than the fire rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible teaches there is hell, hell and there is heaven. The, the Bible teaches, even through the words of Jesus, that hell is a place of judgment, a place of torment. Jesus warned of hell more often than any other teacher in the Bible. He called it a fiery furnace, an eternal fire, an eternal judgment, a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, and the worm there is actually a maggot, a place where the maggot doesn't die. It's a horrible picture of death and decay that doesn't end, that continues on and on and on. And you say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Well, our sin is what sends us to hell. You realize that, right? Like we, we are going to hell that was created for the devil and the demons because we also have rebelled against God because we're sinners and God is holy and God is just. And the question isn't how can a loving God send any sinner to hell. The question is how can a righteous, holy God truly forgive any of us? How can any of us ever get to heaven? How can you get to heaven and who you are and what you've done if you really have to stand before a holy God that knows everything you've ever done? 
If God is really holy, if he's really perfect, if he's really completely righteous, how in the world are you ever going to make it? The answer is you're not. You deserve hell. You ought to go to hell for all eternity because you're a sinner. The real question and the real amazement ought to come when you realize God loved us enough to give Jesus who came and who lived the life we're reading about in order that he might die upon a cross to give his life a ransom for your sins and mine so that he could take our place. He says, I I will take their place and I'll bear the penalty of their sins in order that they might be forgiven. I hope you know Christ. And I hope you realize as you share Jesus what's truly at stake. That you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the gospel. That you have the answer to eternal life and eternal death. It's a comfort in times of persecution to know God is going to make all things right, but it's also a call of compassion. It's a call of compassion to realize there's lost people that need Jesus. And we need to do all we can to get the gospel to them because the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah don't compare to the fires that are eternal of hell. Are you a disciple of Jesus? I've met a lot of half-hearted disciples of Jesus, but are you a true disciple of Jesus? Are you truly living your life for Him? Are you truly stewarding your finances for Him? Are you truly moved in your heart as you think of the what's at stake even and who God's called you to be and what He's called you to do as being salt and light for Him? I want to close with the words of a poem I've read to you before, but it's good to read it at least once a year, if not multiple times a year. It's a poem written by C.T. Studd, who was a missionary in the the turn of the the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century, end of the uh, 19th century. He served with Hudson Taylor in China. And he wrote these words. He said, Some wish to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell. He said, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Think about that for a moment. Some want to live within within the sound of the, the church or the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And he went and he gave his life to reach those that have never heard the, the gospel with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps what he's most well known for is this poem he wrote, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on my throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, 
yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make of us faithful disciples. Lord, a group of people who truly understand the calling you place upon our lives to live for you in everything that we are, in the places you've called us to be and to work, with our finances, with the compassion even of our heart. Give us a burden for lost people. Lord, if there's anybody here that's never come to Christ as we're talking about going and tell others, telling others about Him, I know there may be some in here who've not come to Him yet. I pray that even now they would turn, they would believe, they'd come to see that He is Lord and Savior, and that You are God who is willing.